you know, sometimes we're asked, why do you do this work? And I think I have to say, Misasha, you and I always discuss this. For sure, it's for our kids. And it's also largely for ourselves too, because we all have racial identities and we all see the things that are happening in our society. And when we talk about this work, I think it's pretty clear that there are a lot of spheres we need to change to make this world better for ourselves and for our kids, right? I mean, there's the schools, conversations we have at our kitchen tables, policing, that false idea of law and order, public services, the government, the workplace. There's a lot, but I'm going to stop at workplace because you and I, we always talk about how when we discuss racism, we're talking about the systems that run our society. And I think we also make it really clear that systems are made up of people. So if we don't take the time to do some inner work, to do the humanity work, we won't be making changes to the systems that are going to be meaningful and sustainable. Oh, I think that's such an important point. And that's why I think we love this discussion we're about to bring you, which is about reimagining inclusion in the workplace. And this is based on a book called Reimagine Inclusion, which was a really fantastic action-oriented book that lays out practical things that you can do in the workplace to help uproot systemic racism. Literally things that you can start doing differently today or the minute that you finish reading the book. And, you know, I hopefully you heard me say practical and action-oriented because you know how much we love those things. And it sort of reminded me of our own books, Listen, Learn, and Act Framework. Plus, we are huge fans of Mina Malik, who, if you aren't following on LinkedIn already, you really should be. So listen in, and if you like what you hear, go on and do two things, please. Order the book, Reimagine Inclusion, and then go tell someone at your workplace or someone you know in another workplace about Mita's work so that you can bring her into your organization and really deepen this effort for change. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps normalize and model conversations around race and racism so that we can help more white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Hi, everyone. My name is Mita Malik. I am a business executive, diversity, equity, inclusion leader, most important job I have is mom to Jay, who's 10 going on 20, Priya, who's eight going on 18. Going to stick around for any parenting tips from the two of you. And I am now an author. I have my new book coming out called Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, available for pre-order on Amazon right now. I love that. We are so excited because we've had you on our show before where we talked about colorism. And I know you gave the title of what you do for work right now, but can you tell our listeners a little bit more, especially in the context of what we'll discuss with your book, what are the roles and and experiences you play in DE&I both personally and professionally? I would say it starts with my origin story. Someone asked me that recently. What's your origin story? It's like from the Marvel Oh, family, the Marvel land. And I'm not a very big Marvel fan, but now getting interested in the origin story. And I'm so glad to be back. Thank you so much for having me back on this amazing podcast. It really starts with, I talk about this at the beginning of my book, which I know you've had a sneak peek preview and have read. I have been chasing inclusion my entire life. And I have been raised in a community where I didn't feel included. I then transitioned into high school and college, didn't feel included, and then went into workplaces and spaces where I didn't feel included and didn't realize that would be a theme my entire life. And I started off in storytelling. I still consider myself a marketer because I believe inclusion is a driver of the business. I always wondered why people like me 
weren't represented in products and services. And we talked about that in colorism, right? Why isn't it that we don't celebrate, center, showcase dark-skinned women in the beauty world? What is it that holds us back from doing that? And then I transitioned into being a chief diversity officer, and my passion led me down that path. And I am currently the head of DEI at Carta. Thank you for sharing all of your experience. Shifting to the book, and thank you for letting us have this sneak peek. Because page after page, your book hits not just, you know, in practical points and examples of what to do and what not to do, but also because it feels so like really doable and comprehensive. And I just want to say, we have kids who are the same ages. And as the mom of a Blasian kid, the only Black kid in his class, by the way, who was asked for a baby photo for a guess which baby photo spread for his fifth grade graduation yearbook. And I was like, uh, this one's going to be tough, y'all. Like what you share in the book resonated in spheres outside of the corporate world as well. So we'd love to start talking about your book by asking you this, because I'm sure you're going to be asked this if you haven't already. How is your book different from what's already on the market? Well, first of all, time is a precious commodity. I trust you both so completely. And thank you for reading it. Thank you for taking the time to read it. My husband still hasn't read it. So I think he's just lived it. So I hope he can read it at some point. Why did I write this book? There's a lot of good books about diversity, equity, inclusion, leadership, culture out in the marketplace right now. I wanted to write a book that said the quiet parts out loud. What were the things, the stories, the myths, the things that we hold on to that we think are true? And we stop that. It prevents us from making meaningful progress in our workplaces. And I wanted to say those things out loud. And that's why I wrote the book. And I wanted it to be a bit provocative, as you both know me well, that I wanted people to sit up and read it and listen. Yeah, absolutely. The way you structure it is these 13 myths as you just said, right? And these misbeliefs that we have. And as I was reading through them, I had my thoughts, but which ones do you think are going to be easiest for people to sort of absorb and be like, oh yeah, I can see that. And which ones do you think will be most difficult for leaders to implement? Oh, that's a great question. People ask me why 13. It's my lucky number. That's why. It's true. That's why I picked 13. There are more than 13. But I also thought about what are the things that are the most commonly held myths that I continue to hear. And maybe there'll be a part two because there's more than just those 13. That's a great question. You know, when I tell people about myth number one, as you all have read it, each myth is on purpose clickbait and provocative because I want people to actually dive into it. I want to reach people in a different way. Myth number one, of course, I support Black Lives Matter. Why are you asking if I have any Black friends? Most white leaders, when I read it out loud or people I'm talking to my book about, you can see people have a physical reaction. They get uncomfortable. And what is that myth about? I will spill a little tea about the story, but it is around the murder of George Floyd, It is what my co-host of my podcast, Brown Table Talk, DC Marshall coined the diversity tipping point where corporate America finally stood up and said Black lives do really matter. I had a lot of particularly white leaders coming to me saying, what should I do? I want to post something in social media. And I have this exchange with the leader who's getting frustrated with me because we're not he's trying to post something I don't think is appropriate. So we go back and forth and I ask him, well, what do your black colleagues and friends think about this? Have you talked to them about what's happening in the world today? And he said, why are you asking if I have any black friends? And I thought to myself, well, that's not what I asked. And so one of the really hard truths that I wanted to tackle in this book is that we're all chasing inclusion 
Inclusion does not start at our conference room tables. It start, doesn't start at the boardroom tables. It starts at our kitchen room tables. And the truth is, in the U.S. today, based on the research I included, two-thirds of white Americans are still self-segregating and similar numbers for Black Americans. So how do you expect leaders, when companies are chasing diversity of representation, how do you expect me as a leader to lead diverse teams if I am not equipped, if I do not understand anyone's life experience but my own, and I haven't actually made an attempt to think about how I can build cross-cultural bridges? And I think that's going to be probably a tough one for people to digest because as you have gone through that myth, you'll see that there's a lot of self-reflective exercises, which are tough. I really appreciate that. First of all, myth one, when I read it, I was like, oh yes, I'm glad we are like going right there because wow, is that a familiar conversation? And so I also loved that for every myth, you include these really personal stories from your own experience um, in each one. And I can say that especially myths seven and eight really hit home from my own law firm experience. Mm. I was like, yes, I've lived seven and eight. Myth seven, we need more people of color in leadership. Let's launch a mentorship program. Myth eight, of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave. Lived both of those really powerful. And so I feel like, I mean, as those resonated with me, I feel like probably for you, Mita, there was a myth in particular, maybe that stood out to you while writing this or something that really, you know, struck you, perhaps, or maybe not that you want to share with our listeners or share some thoughts about. Well, well, two things. I'll go back to you asked me what would be hard and easy to listen to. I think the myth that you just talked about, of course, we support women, we just extended maternity leave. It's really tackling the fact that not all women want to become caregivers and mothers, and that also extending maternity leave is not enough to tackle, take on the motherhood penalty, which I talk about. I think people will be surprised that I bring up gendered ageism. We talk about it, but not enough. Women are never the right age to work. We're either too young or too old. Like, what is the right age, right? Men seem to get better with age, right? And you're just like, At what point am I just accepted for who I am? So that's interesting. You know, the one that I thought about a lot was, this is like you're asking me to choose between my kids, right? Because they're all- (laughs) I know, it's a tough question. I know. (laughs) They're all precious and important. Right. When your kid says, who do you love more? Who do you love more? Myth six, why are you asking for a raise? Your husband makes more than enough money. And so this one, I think, takes people by surprise because I think what I do in the book, as you all have gone through it, is that- I also talk about this idea that you can have the right structures and processes in place. Many companies quietly behind the scenes look at pay inequities, right? They do an analysis. They're looking to see, making sure people are paid fairly and equitably. And guess what? It gets down to the individual. Because what I talk about in this myth is that white women and women of color do negotiate. They're just often gaslit, minimized, or dismissed when they do ask for more. And so what I ask leaders to do is think about what is our relationship with money culturally? Like I was raised not to talk about money. You don't ever ask anyone how much they make. You don't ever talk about the nice things you have. Very much a part of like growing up in an immigrant household, right? You don't ever talk about any of the things that you have or you get or you have earned. But how does that show up in in the workplace? If, If Sarah asks me, for a raise, or comes to me and just says, as I did, I'd like to have you review my compensation. Why is my immediate reaction anger or disdain? Or why do I think to myself, well, shouldn't she be grateful? Why is she asking for more? Versus if Joe shows up 
and asks for the compensation to be reviewed. Do I have a different reaction? The other thing that I share, one of the stories, which you'll probably recall is earlier in my career, I was going to a leadership offsite and my pay was up for review. And culturally, I like a lot of jewelry. Like I spend money on jewelry. That's the only thing I'll spend money on. I didn't wear any of my nice jewelry. And my husband's like, where's your wedding ring? And I was like, I don't want to give them any reason to pay me less. And as I talk to more and more women, women will say, yeah, that's not the time to bring out that logo bag. That's not the time to wear all of your fine, whatever brand that you have. And that's just, you know, when's the last time we judged a man for carrying a Birkin bag to work and said, well, he's doing well enough. We don't need to be paying. I was so glad you included that story because I remember you talking about it like in one of our conversations through the years. And I was so glad to see that in writing. And I want to go back to something you said. You really provide a lot of detailed steps and questions about what people can do. It, you know, And I love some of the specific focus on stuff like getting rid of toxic employees and the individual actions that help sort of deal with the systemic issues that are, are, that are at play and, and how it does ultimately come down to our need to be introspective. So you know, Misasha and I have the Listen, Learn, and Act framework. We're big on the act. Can you talk about a little bit more about your choice to include these questions and these steps for people to take action? I wanted it to be a book that I would have used earlier in my career. And even now, I wanted it to be practical. I do think there's a place for academia. There's a place for research that's important. I include some of it. But I wanted people to say, okay, this is what I can do differently. This is how I can show up differently tomorrow. And so I wrote it, I guess, as I would like to read it, which I don't know is either a good thing or not. But I felt like I'm going to do what I do well, which is pull together powerful stories, research, things I've seen in the marketplace, and then just leave reminders for people. Because the book, 13 Myths, it's expansive. There's a lot in there. I hope people will be uncomfortable. I hope they'll go back. I hope they'll go back to different myths and have notes and use it as a handbook, as a resource guide. And that was my hope as I was writing it. I love that. Then speaking of the action, one of the things I was like, oh, I really need to ask her about this when we talk was the role of white men, Mm. right? You said in the book, like 72% of corporate leadership are white men. 85% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are white men. And we are in alignment with how we think white folks need to play a role in this work and how to approach and engage them. So how would you suggest people think about the role of white people and white men and white women in this work? I want white men to think about the role they play in this work, right? And so part of it is, as I talk about in that part of reimagined inclusion, it's twofold. I think there are moments and there are places and spaces where men feel, white men feel, or this is true, or that they have been shamed, named, blamed, demonized. And we look at the headlines, if we picked it up today, whether it's a Harvey Weinstein or a Matt Lauer, there are individuals who must move on, have caused hurt and harm, and need to seek redemption elsewhere, whatever you might believe or think, but they need to leave their workplaces immediately. And I think sometimes that makes a number of white men shut down and feel uncomfortable because they don't know if they can ask these questions, right? And so it's also not helpful, I would say, as in my role as a chief diversity officer, if somebody is going to ask me a question for me to say, well, shouldn't you know the answer to that? Are you really asking that out loud? Oh my gosh, like that's not that I want to meet them where they are. So there's that place. But I also think then white men need to step into the conversation and think about the role they can play. 
I wanted to leave a lot of actionable step. I put together a whole list of things that you could do starting tomorrow. But you know, think about the ways in which you can reach white men and think about why white men might want to do this work. Many of them, it's for their daughters, it's for their wives, it's for their cousins, it's for their sisters. I'll take that entry point. When you become a CEO, you've become the CEO. Part of it should be about your legacy. Are you thinking about how you want to leave the C-suite and the board in a different place in three to five years from now? Right? Are you thinking about who you're sponsoring? Whose career are you actively fighting for other than yours, your own behind closed doors? And so I think there's so many ways. And I also bring up, which is controversial, again, the statistics for the business case for diversity. Many people will say, we're long past that. I would say it's still a helpful reminder, right? From the US alone, there's two statistics I included. One says that there's over $3.3 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer. Another says it's closer to $5 trillion. So boy, inclusion is a driver of the business. And if you are not thinking about how that's a competitive advantage, you will be left behind. Absolutely. You will be left behind. I appreciate you sharing all of that because as Sarah mentioned, I think that this is a question we get asked a lot, you know, around the role of white people. I think it's so important because I think the point that you made about legacy is really important as well. And people tend to sort of gloss over that. But that is a really powerful tool, right? And I think really taps into some of that psyche of like, well, how do I really want to be remembered? And what is that role? And so keeping that in mind and taking a step back, you know, at the start of our conversation, you referenced the murder of George Floyd and the diversity tipping point. And as we take like a big picture look, I think, you know, three years post the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, in this current DEI landscape, we've had so many companies sort of walking back all of the grand things that they said in May and June of 2020. And now either removing those, changing course, giving excuses or or a whole host of other things that are happening. So where do you think, given all of that, the culture of companies is likely headed? Like, and I know this is a crystal ball type question, perhaps, but we're so curious to hear what you think. Progress is slow for certain, but I also have a lot of hope. This is why I continue to do this work. I want the world of work to be different for all of our kids. So I'm not going to give up that fight. What I would say is I think you are starting to see in the marketplace, you will start to see organizations who live and lead by their values and those who want to stay silent and don't. And so then it becomes when the pendulum swings in the marketplace, and when I, the employee, are in the driver's seat, I'm going to ask the hard questions and I'm going to make those choices, right? Sephora is an example I use a lot. Sephora, stop taking my money. Stop taking my money, Sephora. I spent too much money there. But an example of a brand I include in Reimagine Inclusion who had missteps early on, but every single day they continue to do the work, right? And just like in relationships, right? And commitments. We have commitments. We have a relationship with brands and companies and they continue to show up in small and big ways. Now, by the time the episode airs, there will be more to be said around Target, right? And what's happening right now from a US perspective, Target, 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 long-standing ally to the LGBTQ plus community. And it's taken a quite a different turn where they're pulling products for June Pride Month because they feel that their employees are no longer safe. And so there's a lot of questions around that. North Face stepping up in a different way. But that's what's ultimately going to happen. And I think also with Gen Z entering the workforce, and I talk a lot about the Edelman Trust Barometer Survey, 
you know, belief-driven buying is here to stay. And yes, you can say it's Gen Z. It's across generations. And so people will now vote with their wallets. They will. And I think you'll start to see very quickly, like, like I said, organizations who are leading with values and living their values, others who are staying silent. And then you have the coin bases of the world, right? Who very clearly said, we're not going to talk about politics at work. And I say, well, that's really interesting because uh, for many people, this is not politics. This is human rights. This is life or death. So even the privilege you have of saying, I don't want to talk about anti-Asian hate crimes at work. That's politics. That's interesting because for us, I would say not politics. It's about human rights. What else haven't we asked that you want to share? Because we could really go down into, I know us, and we could go into deep rabbit holes about any one of these myths very quickly. <laughs> so I want to make sure in the spirit of summer book club and that sort of stuff that we get what you need to share with our audience too. There's two myths top of mind. I'll go with, it's time to have courageous conversations on race. Let's ask our employees of color to lead them. That's myth three. I see you both nodding. Oh, gosh, I can't keep count of the number of times when hurt and harm is is caused and a historically marginalized community is in pain and we gather our employee resource groups to put pain on display. And it happens over and over and over again. And employee resource groups are really important for community conversation, but they are not your diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, right? They are not your DEI strategy. And so for those who are on their journey to be an ally, I'll speak for myself. I'm on a journey to be an ally to the Black community. I'm on a journey. There's no destination. And the only person who can tell you or the people that can tell you if I'm an ally is my Black friends and colleagues. You'd have to go ask DC Marshall and say, hey, does Mita show up as an ally for you? Only she can answer that. And I'm not looking for accolades, right? I'm not looking to be like, yes, I'm an ally. Yes, I got a check mark. But I have to ask myself, what's the burden to educate me myself as an ally versus finding the only black person I might know at work and asking them how they feel about another black unarmed American being killed. Because what we don't understand is that there's intergenerational trauma there. And at what cost you need to go to a primary source? Because here's the thing, one of the oldest forms of communication in human civilization is storytelling. So we're very drawn to storytelling. But you have to think about like at what cost you need to go to a primary source and have you thought about, we talk about intent versus impact. With your positive intent, you're trying to educate them. With your impact, they're re-experiencing trauma. This is why Google is your best friend. Sometimes. In this case, yes. <laughs> Google. Sometimes. Dear White Women, your beautiful book. There's so many resources. My book. You can go educate yourself, right? And then as we talk about when you have really close, meaningful, deep relationships, you can, with care, have those conversations with individuals but only if you've put the time and energy into those relationships. And so if I can just leave listeners with one thing, it's like, do not put pain on display in your corporate workplaces. And it is not the job and the burden of black and brown people to educate everyone else in the company. Absolutely. And I think to emphasize what you said was, we are done, like, blaming other people or saying, I don't have time, or like, if this is your life, your responsibility, your mission to educate yourself. So if it's important to you, make the time and create a life that you have enough time to do this, or just know that you're making a different choice. It's not that you don't have time, you are making choices. I love what you two both said, because I think that that is so important, especially about the choice concept, because I think that 
a lot of times when I hear pushback to these conversations, or I hear sort of, you know, the idea is to sort of skip that self-education step and go straight to like, ask, you know, having been on the receiving end of that, as I'm sure we all have been, you know, I, I keep thinking like, the way the avoidance that self-education, the avoidance that goes into play with that, a lot of times it's, you know, based on fear and fear. I think about this, like, especially with parents having white parents having conversations with their children about racism, right? The fear that I hold as a parent, right? About around having these conversations, I then place onto my child, right? And say, well, it's, it's the trauma for them, right? Why I'm not doing this. So I think we're, there are also, it's a choice that you're making and think about the excuses that you hold as well, you know, as to why you're making a different choice. I think it's really important to interrogate those to maybe get us past those excuses to the action point, right? Yes, absolutely. All right. So if people want to find you, find your book, where do they go? Yes. Please go to LinkedIn. Please go to Amazon. Reimagine inclusion, debunking 13 myths to transform your workplace. You will not be disappointed please go pre-order. I'm really excited to see the impact the book's going to make. And thank you so much, first of all, for having me back as a repeat guest, because I know you work really hard to be inclusive and have a diversity of representation when it comes to voices. So I appreciate being back here. And I appreciate you both reading the book so much. It was great. It felt like fire. It felt like she is saying these things and she is leaving people with very specific things to think about. So again, it is your choice to bury your head in the sand or go on and get this book and really start taking the time to interrogate yourself so you can be a better human being in the workplace. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>